Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Greetings and salutations. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking about the Afghanistan papers, the extremely detailed report published by The Washington Post that provides close to incontrovertible evidence that American politicians and military leaders mishandled the war in Afghanistan almost from the outset and systematically deceived the American public about how the war was going. But first, Peter Kadzis, President Donald Trump has now been impeached. You've been watching almost every minute of the impeachment deliberations. So I got to ask you, what do you think this moment means for the Trump presidency and for America moving forward? Well, let's recap and review. And I would begin by saying, let me deal with the Democrats first. Impeachment was supposed to um, shift public opinion. It hasn't. Just minutes before we came down to uh, record, I checked 52% of the Americans favored president, 43% don't. The last poll taken right before impeachment, 47% wanted him impeached, 46 didn't. So as far as moving the dial of public opinion in any meaningful way, the Democrats have failed to do that. Now, the impeachment proceedings up to now would were supposed to also persuade the U.S. Senate, at least knock a few people loose. There is no evidence whatsoever that that has happened. By the way, this is not to say that I don't think the the president warrants being impeached. I think he does. I don't think the case is as strong as many people do, but I think the wrongdoing is pretty clear. It's pretty narrow, but it's pretty clear. But that's an academic point when you're looking at the politics of this. The election in 2020 is going to be a referendum on the incumbent. And I just cited to you the, the numbers. I culled them from 538, which is not only the most solid, but probably the most conservative of the numbers people. So um, I, I, I'm tempted to say big deal. Let me ask you about support for impeachment, because I look, as you do frequently, at, at 538's numbers. And there's one, or maybe I should say two sets of numbers that I've cited repeatedly when I've gone on our air to talk about this. Back in late September, right when the Ukraine story hit, uh, 51% of uh, Americans, according to 538, did not support impeachment. 40% did. Now, as you noted, we've got this even split where it's basically you know almost 50-50 in terms of support and don't support. So even though it hasn't to this point, convinced an overwhelming majority of Americans to back impeachment. Can't you say that the process has shifted thinking in a concrete and tangible way? I mean, that's a that's a change of ten percentage points right there. It's it's marginal. You know, you factor in the the margin of error. Um, there is no big swing here. You know, look, when Bill Clinton was impeached, his popularity went up and up and up. Very interesting. We're locked in the 50% zone, and I think there was a time when it was useful to look at the rate of change. It isn't anymore. We've got a 50-50 split. What now? Let me ask you to, as a former colleague of ours used to say, take it up to 30,000 feet for a meta or macro perspective. I've been wondering... Will I get the ASIC? No, you're going to feel great. I've been wondering how impeachment 
will change President Trump's governing style, both for the remainder of his term and if he's reelected his second term. I'm also wondering if it's basically now a foregone conclusion that the next time there's a Democratic president, if Republicans control the House, that he or she will be impeached as retribution for this. Those are just a couple examples. But what do you think writ large uh, this means for the future of American politics? Well, you know, impeaching the next Democrat, maybe. But then again, maybe not. One reason the Republicans are holding, are being so loyal to the president is their basis. You know, the Republicans are reflecting what their voters want. So I think that would depend in part how strong would given Democrat be. What about the president's MO? Because... Uh, tricky. Look at this um, malarkey in Michigan. He goes after the Dingles and he gets rebuked by the Republicans. I bring this up because he is not a stable person. And just as he invited this impeachment inquiry himself by, in effect, the minute he's, you know, quote cleared, unquote, from the, by the Mueller, Mueller report, report, yeah, he goes off and, you know, cooks up this kooky Ukraine scam. If he's reelected, I would brace myself for a degree of instability that might be truly troubling. All right. On that note, back to the Afghanistan papers. When the Post report hit, we wanted to talk with someone who had actually served in Afghanistan to get their take. I ended up speaking with Eric Edstrom. He's a graduate of Stoughton High School and West Point who went on to become an Army Ranger. He won a Bronze Star while serving in Afghanistan in 2008 and nine, And he's the author of a forthcoming book, titled Un-American, A Soldier's Reckoning of Our Longest War. It's going to be published by Bloomsbury in May 2020. I started off asking Edstrom what his reaction was when the Afghanistan papers were published. Honestly, not wildly surprised. The Afghanistan papers are sort of presented perhaps as news bombshell or this breaking story of, you know, never before did we know that senior leaders were thinking about the conflict this way. When in reality, if America had been listening perhaps more closely or were more engaged with what was happening with our forces in the Middle East, it would be sort of a, a similar trajectory in line with the whole rest of the narrative. One does not have to go particularly far back in the historical record to see General Stanley McChrystal say, you know, that, quote, you know, nobody is winning uh, or something to that effect. Um, there's thousands of journalists um, embedded journalists saying similar things. Um, you know, I was working with a former uh, Afghan warlord and, uh, you know, basically our unit was paired up with him uh, to rid his basically fiefdom of, of Taliban forces. And a Washington Post correspondent was there uh, making it very clear that this was a very gray area, that this is a person guilty of human rights abuses, but they're our most convenient friend. So, you know, this is who we've chosen. Um, so I, I don't think that any of that's new. Um, I could tell lots of different anecdotes um, uh, about some of those similar findings about, you know, the, the things that I, I take away from the Afghanistan papers is, is this couple different themes. One is that uh, 
no one knew what we were doing. You know, and you've heard this sort of narrative from a few different folks. Um, another one is um, this sort of sense of futility that, you know, progress was being basically sort of uh, gerrymandered in a way, you know, new metrics. Uh, and the, the only thing that was being proven by these metrics, the only thing that was certain is that progress wasn't being made. Uh, so, you know, whether one chooses to look at, you know, the amount of geographic terrain controlled by the Taliban versus, uh, you know, government forces or, you know, number of people trained or number of Afghan police trained, they all sort of tell the same story, um, which is that uh, the, the people of Afghanistan do not want what the United States military wants for them as we occupy their country. Uh, that, you know, if you look at sort of quotes from Hamid Karzai, that he would describe our presence as something akin to, um, you know, a colonial power um, occupying their country and that we, you know, they lay out a set of rules and, um, you know, quite deliberately the United States undermines those rules, whether we're talking about uh, bilateral uh, patrols with Afghan forces. On the regular, uh, you know, we would do unilateral patrols without uh, their knowledge or without their consent. Uh, we would do night operations, which again, you know, was prohibited, uh, lots of those sorts of things. So systematically, we undermined the will of uh, the Afghans and their sovereignty. Just as an aside, what was the rationale for doing those things that the U.S. was expressly banned from doing? There was a pragmatic element uh, in the sense that Afghan police didn't want to patrol. Uh, they didn't want to patrol with us. Um, you know, there, there's sort of these stories of, um, you know, the Afghan police being high on drugs and, uh, you know, sort of sitting around an outpost, you know, not being particularly cooperative with, uh, America's, you know, patrolling objectives. I, you know, from firsthand account, uh, you know, have seen marijuana plants grown in Afghan police checkpoints, uh, that it is sort of uh, completely run down, that there's, uh, you know, a bit of a old goat carcass that's been rotting in the corner, um, unidentifiable puddles that are putrid smelling. And, um, you know, when in one case, when an Afghan police checkpoint was being attacked by insurgents, uh, my unit responded. I sent about sort of a squad into one tower in the um, police checkpoint and I went into another tower to provide uh, basically support by fire to protect the outpost from insurgents in a grape field. In, out of the corner of my eye, a um, Afghan policeman who was very visibly high on drugs had a machine gun uh, and was firing it from the hip as if he were some sort of uh, drunk man watering his lawn or you know some sort of Rambo um, that's the first thing I thought of, the Rambo yeah. parallel. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the you know, insurgents are hundreds of meters out into this grape field firing at us with fairly ineffective fire. But what this Afghan policeman next to me is doing is basically firing machine gun rounds into the dirt 15 meters in front of us. And he's just visibly wobbling side to side, firing machine gun rounds anywhere, standing up above the parapet so that he's completely exposed from knees upward. Uh, whereas we're sort of on our bellies in the prone taking well-aimed shots. And uh, the Afghan policeman has a jam with his uh, machine gun. So you hear a very loud ka-chunk. And, 
you know, you still see the belt of ammunition going into this PKM machine gun, a Russian-made uh, machine gun. And rather than, say, aiming it in any other direction to clear the, the blockage or the jammed round, he aims the machine gun inwards into the tower, directly at my face, and then proceeds to try to clear the weapon into my face. Um, and I sort of roll over on my stomach, seeing this gun leveled at my head, and I jerk my head back, and I'm trying to tell him, hey, don't point that expletive gun at my face, and waving at him to aim it somewhere else when it discharges. And I have ringing in one ear. I'm feeling completely deaf, basically concussed, because I'm a matter of feet away from the, the barrel of this machine gun. Um, I look over my shoulder at my team leader, who is spitting blood out of his mouth. And what had happened... Um, you know, that I came to learn was that the machine gun round went between my arm and my face. It hit my assault rifle and then hit my team leader basically in the trap on his shoulder. And the machine gun round went through his body and didn't exit because it hit the back of his body armor on his back. Um, and the, the reason he was spitting out blood was that there was spalling or shrapnel from my assault rifle that had peppered his neck and cheek, um, blowing fragments of his teeth out. So you, you have this small anecdotal story that turns your perception entirely uh, about these sorts of things that are discussed and qualified by journalists in, in various papers. And from an intimate perspective... Uh, they are very true. And um, you could very much tell that progress is not being made after experiencing something like that. Did the people who you fought with come to the same conclusion that you did about progress not being made? Or did they continue to embrace the unrealistic, maybe even flat out false descriptions that were put forward by American politicians and by military commanders? Um, I think it was a mixed bag. I mean... Um, you know, what is a platoon, right? A platoon is this sort of wobbly assemblage of, of people, a slice of America, and there's no sort of monolithic America. These are people from all different states of all different socioeconomic backgrounds of, you know, different education intelligence levels. Um, so you have this sort of group of lovable misfits and Marlboro men, and, and you get folks that are, you know, later became... Uh, PhDs in history. You know, I follow the careers of, of some of my former soldiers. And, um, you know, some are more inclined to do research and, and reading than others. But um, I think it was really uh, a mixed set of reactions. I think that um, there was a desire to want to believe. I think that there is um, a sense that after all of this, it couldn't be worth nothing a sense that um, there must be value to be had, otherwise, why would we be doing it? A sense of placing your faith in the state and in um, you know, military officers and you know, sergeants major who they you know, respect to be doing the right thing by the soldiers with their service. Um, and, and others were deeply skeptical. All of which raises an obvious question. If there was evidence that the war in Afghanistan wasn't succeeding, and if there were veterans trying to make that case to the public at large, why wasn't the public willing to listen? 
Edstrom thinks the answer lies in what he sees as a deeply dysfunctional relationship between the military and American society. You know, one element of it is fiscal policy, which is that uh, this is the first time in American history, the war on terror I'm speaking about, where the U.S. gave tax breaks to wealthy people while simultaneously going to war. Um, in every other uh, war that we can think of, when the United States sent troops into harm's way, we would ask citizens to pay for it. This is the first time that hasn't happened. So it's all been racked up in debt. And when it's all racked up in debt and passed on to future generations to deal with, and their sweat can deal with those $6.4 trillion, well, today's generation is sort of immune from seeing the blinking red lights that say, hey, my taxes are going up a lot. Why are we actually fighting this war? They're basically insulated from the financial burden of going to war, which allows our government to spend more and more and more and dump it on future generations to deal with similarly, you know, like the climate crisis or anything else where it's, you know, convenient for today. So let's make it the future problem. So I think that that's one aspect. The other the bit is sort of patriotism in America. And I've had the opportunity to live in the UK for a couple of years, and I've lived in Australia for five years as well. Other countries do not have the same sort of relationship with their military. Um, in the United States, uh, we sort of think about patriotism in a very different way. Um, in Australia, there's no priority boarding for soldiers. The notion of military discounts does not exist. It is a job that does not have this sort of patriotic pixie dust sprinkled across it, which makes it, you know, in some sort of way, giving it this hedonic uplift where it is worth more than the job itself because it is the military. And, um, you know, because that is the case, what you end up getting is almost um, this sort of vanity patriotism or, you know, where businesses and people will shove a few crinkled bills and charities canister, coffee can for, you know, um, you know, for veterans. And you can have bottomless nachos at your chain restaurant, uh, but no one is willing to ask hard questions like, why are we still serving there? Uh, is this a better return on investment than if we decided to... Uh, you know, build renewable infrastructure and make millions of green jobs and reduce our impact on climate change or, you know, uh, in, invest in education. There's many other ways by which we could spend that, that money and invest our talents and resources, but we're not allowed to ask those questions in America the same way as other countries do. And I would almost describe this as basically lobotomized patriotism, that we politicians and senior officials will say, hey, let's stand up and salute the troops. Let's pat them on the back while we are actively you know, sending them on a plane to go to their fifth tour in Afghanistan. You can flash a max whitening toothpaste smile and they can board the plane and you can say you did your duty as a good citizen by patting them on the back. And what I'm saying is that veterans do not need military discounts and you know, more rounds of applause. What they need is a government that cares how they use their service. Now, obviously, the shift he's talking about there could take a long time to happen, if it ever does. So in the meantime, what should we do in Afghanistan now? This is what Edstrom had to say. What I can say definitively is that more time and more deaths are not going to make things better 
in Afghanistan. Um, you know, one thing I'd, I'd bring together is that the United States summoned a coalition of the most powerful militaries on earth, you know, in 2001. And after spending trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars with the most high-tech equipment, the most well-trained soldiers, and now, you know, over 18 years of time, why is it possible that all of this force, all of this power could not defeat, you know, a few thousand ragtag Taliban fighters? How is that possible? You know, if we are doing what is in the best interest of Afghanistan and we have all this overwhelming force, it should be easy. But the truth, the inconvenient truth that Americans don't want to hear about very often is that we're not working in the best interest of Afghans and that many would have problems with an 18-year occupation of their country and the things that America does in Afghanistan would never be tolerated on our own soil by another country. So, you know, it is something to think about is that, um, you know, we call this, you know, counterterrorism. Well, you know, a drone strike in the United States, maybe targeting someone responsible for um, torture in Guantanamo. Let's just say that. That would uncontroversially be called terrorism. We would define an act of violence like that, political violence on our soil as terrorism. And yet, when we do something very similar and target someone, you know, who the military believes is a very bad person in a different country, which sometimes kills wedding parties, there's, I think, over 11 wedding parties that have been killed in the 18 years of war, that is uncontroversially called by the U.S. military counterterrorism. So maybe there's something to be aligned there in terms of the way in which we look at the war. And I think, for me, what really brought it home and what changed my mind about things being there on the ground is is seeing what it would be like if I grew up there. If the birth lottery allocated me to grow up in Afghanistan, what would I think of an 18-year occupation of my homeland? And it would be very different. You know, I've had friends that have been killed. I've buried one of my best friends in Arlington National Cemetery. I've handed the folded flag to his crying mother, and I've saluted the grave. And in that grave, in Section 60 of Arlington Cemetery, were other freshly dug graves that did not yet contain their occupants. But with more time and with more war, these headstones will also look like all the other headstones. Again, that's Eric Edstrom, author of the upcoming Un-American, A Soldier's Reckoning of Our Longest War. Peter Kadzis, what's your take on what Edstrom had to say there? Well, it was pretty powerful stuff, very thought-provoking. Maybe that's because I was expecting more of a view from the top, a geopolitical view. This was much better. I mean, he manages to, I suppose, because he's been a professional soldier, talk very clinically and dispassionately about some pretty gory stuff. Um, that aside, let me try to collect my thoughts. I mean, I think that one reason American popular culture fetishizes the military is because of, you know, mass guilt over there not being a draft. I think it's as simple as that. Another thought I have is that um, 
you know, look, we're all supposed to worship the po- the populace and the popular voter. But fact of the matter is, American voters taken on mass aren't very bright. You know, if they're boys or girls unthreatened with dying, they'll support almost any war. You know, they're armchair warriors, um, you know, pretending they're John Wayne or something. The image of the fresh graves dug at Arlington Cemetery awaiting, you know, the bodies that have not yet been killed is pretty grisly. It amazes me, as cynical as I am, nothing should amaze me, but that this isn't a um, front and center issue in the presidential debate is beyond me. I wouldn't be surprised to see Trump just pull everyone back and and perhaps guarantee his re-election by doing that. It, it, It amazes me the number of Democrats that start picking at Trump, who, in case anyone missed this early, who I am, you know, who I do not think is a good president or a good person, but Democratic critics will pick, pick, pick away at Trump whenever he tries to do anything for whatever reason. The reason's harebrained, but whenever he tries to de-escalate the military from the Middle East. Sure, it's harebrained, but look at the conclusion. This this is um, a very, very troubling situation. Okay, that's going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Big thanks to Eric Edstrom for joining us. Again, his upcoming book is Un-American, A Soldier's Reckoning of Our Longest War. It's going to be published by Bloomsbury in May of next year. And as always, thanks to you for listening. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us while you're at it and talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam and Peter, your handle? At Kadzis, K-A-D-Z-I-S. Our engineers for this episode were John Parker and Gary Mott. We get crucial production help from them, Andrew Masawa and Dave Goodman. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Mm-hmm.